This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Jonathan Butler, welcome to Better Reading. Thanks for having me, Cheryl. I'm happy to be here. What an interesting book. It's, yeah, really interesting. The book is called The Boy in the Dress. Great title. Uh, Jonathan is a writer and content producer living in Melbourne whose work has appeared in publications including The Guardian. The Boy in the Dress is Jonathan's first book, which he spent 10 years researching. In 1944, a young serviceman named Warwick Mill was found murdered in Townsville. Jonathan is a descendant of Warwick and uncovered fascinating secrets of his family history and wartime history while writing this book. It's not uncommon, is it, for queer people to be persecuted in the army? No, it was um, illegal um, and grounds for discharge for a very long time. Yeah, wow. Well, um, mm. I, don't, I, I don't know, um, you might know about this story. I read it in Vanity Fair many years ago. There was a soldier that was murdered brutally by being hung on a fence. And uh, Yeah, yeah there's, a, there's a few stories in the, mm. the US as well. Yeah, they're mm. awful, awful stories. Awful, awful mm. stories. Okay, so talk to me about this book and talk to me about how it came about. So um, The Boy in the Dress is um, about, as you mentioned, my um, ancestor Warwick. Um, Warwick was actually my grandmother's cousin and my first encounter with Warwick was a photograph that hung on my mother's bedroom wall. In the photograph, uh, it's Warwick and my grandmother playing as little children and Warwick is actually wearing a dress in the photo. So I'm, I'm gay and growing up seeing that photo was, you know, really powerful and I really looked up to it and I was like, wow, you know, I, I had the idea that, you know, liking feminine things and doing things like wearing a dress was shameful um, and something that you shouldn't do or if you did it, you need to do it in hiding. So here was this photo from, you know, I knew it was the olden days back then and it was, you know, a photo of a boy wearing a dress and it was being celebrated and so I thought, oh, that's that's so sweet and I, you know, had a real connection to him from, from as long as I can remember. But yeah, it wasn't until later that mum told me um, the story behind what actually happened to that man and he was murdered in uh, during World War II in Townsville. But, un- but unfortunately, my grandmother sort of was very silent about it and, and didn't sort of pass down a lot of information. There was a lot of shame, a lot of silence. Um, a lot I guess of hurt. Quite- a lot of hurt. Um, I, I guess it's quite common for that generation as well. So unfortunately she didn't pass much down, but so that sort of left it up to me and my mum to try and find the answers. Can I just say in her defence as well, I find when I do speak to people that have had murdered children, now completely obviously beyond their control, but there is mm. that, there is something about wanting to shut it out and not talk about yeah. it, and it seems to be 
if your child is murdered, very different to your child dying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, I think um, that's one thing I encountered writing it, that some some people in my extended family were sort of voiced a, a shame in having a murder victim in the family. And I guess I approached it as in the shame is probably to be the murderer, not the victim. Um, mm-hmm. and you in would fact think so. Yeah. You'd think so, yeah. And, and what I'm trying to do is, you know, trying to, you know, make sure that, that these people weren't killed in vain and that we can learn something from it and not forget them forever, basically. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, I, I do sympathise and understand that sort of impulse to perhaps to push it away and mm-hmm. forget about it. Okay, so tell me how you came to writing and tell me your story. Um, I actually came to writing through this book and this story. So I, yeah, so mum and I started uh, researching Warwick's story um, on Ancestry.com back in 2008, actually when I was um, just 17. And So you were you still know, at school? I just, yeah, so I was in year 12 in 2008. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. so um, towards the end. Um, so I know it's not your typical 18-year-old <laughs> hobby, is it? Um, but no, yeah, mum and I absolutely loved um, all that stuff. So we were looking on Ancestry.com and Trove, which is a, a online database of newspapers, and we found all this amazing newspaper coverage of um, the murder. And, yeah, I sort of ran with it and then, you know, got the archival documents from the Australian War Memorial, from um, Queensland State Archives, and I just discovered this phenomenal story and I was like, I have to tell this. So basically I, I came to writing through through that. I, I had to, I obviously did writing at um, university and did lots of essay writing and that sort of thing. But, yeah, The Boy in the Dress is, is my sort of, it ignited my passion for queer history and it ignited my passion for writing and I'm still doing it today. Yeah, wow, extraordinary. So is all that information quite accessible, like Um, threading all those pieces together? Because it must be a puzzle. Total puzzle. And it was 10 years um, for that reason. Um, I was, I'm a very much an amateur historian. So I had to sort of teach myself a lot of, you know, how, what, what were the key documents that I needed? So I had a lot of helpful people on the way um, who I consulted with to help me, you know, what to look for, um, who to ask. There was a lot of red tape, believe it or not. So it's a, you know, a, the, the crimes that feature in the book happened in the 40s, but Believe it or not, I had to wait until just uh, 2020 until an embargo was lifted on a key document I needed from the Public Record Office of Victoria. And so I had to sort of, you know, wait for that to be released and I got it just in time, which was great. But, yeah, there's a lot of interpreting the documents, a lot of acronyms, a lot of cursive writing, um, a lot of working out what it actually means. So, yeah, there's a there's a huge sort of evidence board and character list and, you know, going lots down lots of different rabbit holes and trying to work it out and tell a cohesive story. And was there pushback from the army in terms of getting information? Um, so the primary army resource is the um, sort of the, the forms that soldiers sign when they enlist, which is freely available on the National Archives of Australia. So every sort of soldier has one of those, or most of them do, and it has a heap of information about who they are, who their parents were, down to their eye colour and, and that sort of level of detail, religion, you know, next of kin, relationship status. So that was really powerful. And then I could use that information on other, you know, platforms like Ancestry.com. So, yeah, the, the main sort of, I guess, army source was, was those, those documents. 
And there are a few more contemporary um, crimes um, and cases that um, have happened in the the Defence Force. Um, And I sort of relied more on um, journalism and sort of the reporting of of those crimes and, Mm. yeah, things that are freely available. So tell us what you discovered, and I know it's in the book, but tell us a little bit about Warwick and what you found out about him. Because you know what, I I mean, I haven't done these, but I've spoken to many nonfiction writers and I... I always wonder, like, you you are finding out so much about this person, you're living, breathing them, and I sometimes wonder is there a point where you find out something about them that you don't like and then you stop liking them or you find out something about them that you do like and then you start liking them. Anyway, but going back, it kind of always, and, you know, I guess that's, you know, in, in writing history as well, but talk to me about that, that he's factual life. I think the part of the reason why I was so drawn to Warwick was the level of similarity I felt with him. So obviously there was the photo of him in the dress. So I, from the onset, I felt a connection. But then How as old I kept, were you when you appreciate? Sorry to interrupt. How old no, were no, you no. when you oh, appreciated? Very young. Honestly, as long as I can remember, it like four, five yeah, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there's a there's a quick story in the book of me getting caught in a dress um, by yeah. my, I have three older sisters. So, yeah, I certainly enjoyed doing that as a kid and I knew that that was inverted commas wrong, scare, scare quotes. Um, so, uh, anyway, that's that was that initial connection. But as I learned more about him, I, I felt a bit, bit of a connection. So his nickname was Jazza. And everyone called him Jazza because he loved to dance. And <laughs> so do I. And so yeah. that was really lovely to read. And I was like, oh, you know, that's another thing we share. He worked in retail. Um, yeah. So I, you know, started my, you know, professional career in retail. And I could sort of picture him, you know, going to Sydney in the, the 30s um, to work in his shop. Um, there's some great photos I have of him doing that as well. He was part of the signals and some other references I've read about. And I actually spoke to um, people that, were in the signals, uh, not anymore, but they were when I interviewed them. And people are drawn to that because it's it's not an armed, you don't use weapons, it's more about your mind and communication, which is definitely more my wheelhouse than that. Tell me about them a little bit. Tell me about them. What are they? Basically communication. So back in World War II, signal people were in control of all the communications between all the different bases. Um, So they, so Warwick specifically was a linesman. So he literally was laying telephone cable across Papua New Guinea with a few other people, but signalmen can also be the ones sending the messages, um, you know, via Morse code um, in the wireless, uh, using wireless technology. And yeah, that we still have signalmen today. Obviously there's a lot more technology involved, but that was one thing I found quite interesting talking to the signalmen today is that it actually isn't as different despite technology advancing that we still have signalmen, we still have linesmen, we still have that type of that role. So yeah, there was, there was quite a few things that I felt had a bit of a connection with Warwick and really made me obviously deeply obsessed with him and wanting to know more of what happened. Did you feel obsessed with him? Absolutely. I really did. I just, I think it also, it didn't help. So it was an unsolved crime. The Mm -hmm. police couldn't find, they did an eight month nationwide investigation. They really dug. And I think, so I was, you know, I guess that sort of level of obsession as well, like really trying to find out, like, they, they concluded it was just a random person potentially suffering from, they called it partial dementia, someone who was drunk who just walked past him and killed him. I couldn't believe that was the full story. I, I felt like there must be something more, so I was just searching and searching for that answer. 
And I think those stories that I found out about the time and place as well really fascinated me. So I think that only added fuel to the fire of my obsession of this story. Mm. Do you ever feel when you're writing about somebody, and it's so personal, do you ever worry about are you doing this person justice? Are you betraying the person that, you know, he really was? Absolutely. Yeah, I, mm. I, um, that was always at the back of my mind. And I'm also very conscious of there is a hesitancy for historians to claim someone is queer. There is actually a there's a running gag on the internet. I, I'm not sure if you've come across it, but there'll be a, a painting or a story about two people who are evidently queer and then the caption will be historian. They were really close friends or. Oh, yes, know, the, yes, yeah. yes. I have seen that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. often with women as well, like women yeah, that live absolutely. together. absolutely. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, they're yeah. just really close. And, yeah, and then, you yeah. know, they sent love letters. They asked to be buried together. They, you know, yeah. shared like beautiful jewellery. But no, they were just friends. Yeah, um, they were great friends. You, yeah. <laughs> But I suppose, you know, we do have to be cautious. One, you know, our understanding of sexuality today is very different to what it was back then, you know, how they identified themselves. But I think, you know, it's it's important to not let that erase queer people from history and to not pose the question. So, and, and I also tried to think, you know, people, there is an assumption that calling or like one, inquiring whether someone was gay is offensive and a mean thing to say about them. Whereas I don't think of that as mean, um, you know, or offensive, obviously. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I definitely looked into it and the detectives also did inquire about his sexuality. So that was quite a revelatory moment because up until that point, it was just a family rumour that my mother told me. And then here I saw a primary source document from the detectives in 1944 asking whether Warwick was, um, excuse the term, but they used pervert back in the day. Yeah, it's awful. Mm, Horrible, yeah. Mm. And did that, do you think that that clouds their investigation? Um, I I don't think so. I think um, history tells us that detectives more often than not avoid and don't even think about sexuality. Famously, the the gay hate killings in Sydney from the 1970s onwards, a lot of detectives refused to acknowledge the the evidence um, that potentially it was motivated by homophobia. So I think that the fact that they actually looked into that um, is quite significant. And um, I think it's quite good that they they looked into that, considering it was such a strange crime that they just couldn't find any motivation. They couldn't find, you know, they've, they found a few suspects, but yeah, it was um, very difficult. So it's good that they did go down that path, I think. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health 
Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Do you see parallels in your life and his life? Did you see that? Were they obvious or were you looking for a connection? Oh, certainly the latter. Um, you know, I don't, I think basically my book is a, a doc, I, I'm very upfront about, you know, I'm, I haven't come to this very neutrally. Obviously it's very emotional. It's a very personal story. I have a deep connection with it. So I was sort of searching for those connections that I had with him. I did also did do a bit of research around his upbringing and what that would have been like and, you know, spoke to some family members and uh, so he grew up in Western Sydney during the Great Depression. Um, he, his parents, his dad worked, um, was a public servant. His um, mother sort of was a um, stay-at-home mum, had an older brother who later became a um, music teacher. So, you know, I think there was a few things that I could connect with there. You know, I also have sort of creative people in my family. Um, obviously, I, I didn't grow up. Um, during the Great Depression, um, but there was the global financial crisis, which really limited my career opportunities. And, you know, when he was 16 was when World War II started um, and then he was murdered just before his 21st birthday. So there's not a lot of life that uh, he had and that I can sort of look into and compare myself to, but there's certainly little nuggets of information that I definitely, Mm. you know, felt a strong connection to. Mm. And going back to the photo in the dress, do you know the story behind that? Um, I know that it was in the backyard of their house in um, Western Sydney. Um, I know that it was taken by Warwick's mother, Rini, or Irene was her name, but people called her Rini. I know that her uh, Warwick's brother actually liked to dress up as a sailor and that Rini also liked to take photos of that. So it's quite interesting, I, but... Beyond that, not not a lot. Um, I think it's just a yeah, game of mothers and fathers that they wanted to capture in the backyard and it's, yeah, it's really sweet that you can clearly tell how happy they both are and really loving it. It's so lovely, isn't it? It's beautiful. So you've been working on this book for 10 years, right? That's a career in itself. It's a very long time. <laughs> it's a very long time and it's a lot of research. It's a lot of work. Tell me at what point did you realise you had a book? That's a good question. So when I was um, just finished high school, I was doing the initial research and there was always a story at the back of my head and I always thought about it. I did briefly um, pause it um, and just sort of picked it up every now and again throughout university. But then it sort of occurred to me when I started doing the more legitimate research in consulting with um, academics and historians, getting those primary sources from the archives that had a really fascinating story. I actually initially wrote it as fiction. And oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So I was like, I, I wanted to create a historical fiction that I could, because, you know, it was an unsolved crime, but I had lots of ideas and there's lots of clues. So I was like, maybe I can just use it as a starting point and recreate this world, but, you know, have a bit more freedom. But what I found was that I had to really cut it back because it wasn't making, it was a bit too out there. It was a bit too strange. It didn't fit neatly into a narrative. Um, And I thought that was quite a shame that why am I reducing these fascinating aspects of the story? Maybe I should lean into the crazier bits of the story um, and tell it truthfully. I I then also realised at the same time that my experience and what he meant to me and what he meant for my mother and I and me growing up as gay 
was part of the story as well, not just the crime. So I think that it then dawned on me that I should really write this experience of investigating it um, in nonfiction form. It is narrative nonfiction. There are elements, um, you know, luckily in the archival documents, there are a lot of, there's lots of dialogue. So I could even draw from that. There's so much detail because they were looking for witnesses. So they'd tell them exactly what they were drinking at exactly which cafe on exactly which street. So I could really paint the picture and make that a vibrant story. So yeah, it's definitely narrative nonfiction. And then, yeah, sort of was writing and editing for a long time and finally got it published, which is great. Okay. No, no, no. You've skipped a bit. (laughs) (laughs) What did I skip? (laughs) You skipped a bit. A lot of people struggle with finishing it. Yeah. Like, yeah, at what point did you know, okay, this is it, I'm done, it's a book, I need to get it published? So I, luckily for me, in 2019, I um, quit my job with my partner and we went travelling overseas uh, for nine months. Wow. And, yeah, so we went. Just before COVID. (laughs) Exactly, that's what I'm saying, luckily. Yeah. Yeah. We um, (laughs) spent most of that time in Italy, but we also went through Europe and America. Gorgeous. Yeah, it was a beautiful, beautiful trip. But I also was writing that whole time. So I would try and find sort of cool libraries in Paris to write from for the day and then my partner would go off to a museum and then we'd meet again for dinner. So it was an amazing experience. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) Not to show up. I know it's a bit cruel to tell that story in this this era. Now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But then I, I got back from that and I still hadn't finished it and I was like, right, I've just, you know, gone on this holiday and I committed to writing it and I've dedicated 10 years of my life to it. I need to finish it and I need to get some formal interest if if nothing else just to validate to validate how much time I've spent that I've actually got a story here and then I you know I said right I've just got to start submitting it and start making this formal it went through lots and lots of rounds of edits um, I was very diligent with that luckily my um partner is a writer and an editor oh, as well so that's oh, quite helpful Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. He read a few drafts. That's a little bit of experience that where somebody can help you. It's fantastic. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, he yeah. was. Yeah. And he also gave me a lot of confidence. So, you know, as I mentioned, um, I didn't come to this story as a writer, but he was cheering me on saying, you know, you've got a great story and you, you can write, so let's do it. So, yeah, that really helped me get it across the line. And so selling it, I mean, that's hard. How do you get a publisher? How do you get an agent? So I I didn't have an agent. I heard stories about the dreaded slush piles. So I, my strategy was start with contacts and then work my way down. Um, So I was luckily, I had sort of three loose contacts that I could follow up. I, and I also did try an agent um, that was unsuccessful. And yeah, on the advice of a friend, they suggested that I go with a firm press, um, that they're a really great size, they're local, um, you know, they really enjoy and, you know, celebrate stories like this. So, um, yeah, submitted it to a firm and, and, and I'm surprised open, they liked it. <laughs> yeah, they have an open submission process, I think one day a month or something. Yeah, they do, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah which yeah. is fantastic. Oh, look, they're great people. We love yeah. them producing great work. How yeah. did you feel when they said, okay, well, we're interested? Oh, look, to be honest, I cried. <laughs> I really did. I um, ten years work. Yeah, You're entitled to that. Yeah, yeah. I, I I think I should mention as well. It's a very personal work because um. Yes. So as I mentioned, I started it with my mum, and yeah. my mum passed away in 2017. Um, and she was a huge supporter of this book. Um, I'm and she so was the one sorry. who said to me, 
write it. It's a great mm. story. You should really write it. And so I certainly had her words at the back of my head as well. So I think when I found out it was going to be a bona fide book, just like, oh my gosh, like she was right. And she would be so happy to hear that this is her story. Our story is being told and the world's going to be able to see it. She'd be absolutely stoked. Oh, that's beautiful. I'm so sorry about your mum. Oh, thank you. Okay. So you finally, um, a firm like it. And then there's another editorial process there, isn't there? Yes. Yes, that's it. <laughs> Talk to me about that. <laughs> um, yeah, it was it was interesting. I, I went through, so, you know, I always didn't have that high hopes that it'd be published. I think because it's such a strange combination of themes. So even myself, before I started researching, I thought that World War II was was a bit of a dull era. I sort of survived the grade 10, you know, syllabus and but kind of was tuned out. But then when I started researching, I realised it was really fascinating and was really interested in it and that there's a lot of queer history associated with military history and Australian history as well. And as I mentioned, there's a bit of memoir and queer memoir in it and at the core is a true crime because it's a murder mystery. So already you can hear there's lots of different things going on there. So I was like, well, is this is there a reader out there that's going to, you know, be interested in that type of book that, mm. you know, addresses all those different themes? Um, so, yeah, that was an interesting process going through the editing to kind of um, hear, you know, what the editors thought around those different threads. I I probably went a bit further into the family history that has survived and made it into the final version. They did an amazing job helping me with the structure and really tightening it up and, yeah, just getting that voice um, really mm-hmm. sharp. Um, but, yeah, no, I'm, I'm incredibly thankful for, yeah, the all the three rounds of edits were really great and it's a much better book. Thanks because of yeah, it. It always is. Um, Tom Keneally once said to me, and this is years ago now, I was travelling with him actually, and you know he writes um, uh, history, he writes fiction and he writes um, non-fiction, but he was, we were talking about Aboriginal people and he said to me that very often they've just, they've been written, either written out mm. or not even mentioned. There could be people there and they're not even talked about in history. And I think that's the same, isn't it? It's not that they're not writing about queer history. They just didn't put it in, (laughs) if you like. Yeah, it's a huge challenge with queer history. Um, I think, well, for most of history, it's been illegal. So there's a lot of queer people for a long time went out of their way to not leave material evidence of their existence because if there was material evidence, they could go to jail. Um, it was illegal right up to mm. 97 in Tasmania. So it's not a long time ago at all. Mm. Um, so it is, it's really hard for historians to find material evidence. Mm. There is the occasional diary, um, you know, things like murders are, like, are good because there are lots of documentation, but obviously it's quite biased. It, it's harder to find, but it is there. It also doesn't help. And, you know, potentially this is linked to what you mentioned with, um, you know, First Nation people is that people sort of didn't want to acknowledge it for a long time as well. Mm -hmm. Um, For a long time, people literally said there just weren't any queer people in the army. They weren't weren't Anzacs. They weren't in World War II. They just didn't exist. Mm -hmm. And we obviously know now that that that's just not true. So there's some great work being done um, by historians to sort of correct that narrative around, you know, there were queer people mm-hmm. and, you know, they managed to survive, thrive, you know, you know, build communities, languages. And in fact, World War II was 
some historians describe it as the great coming out experience across the world. So in fact, it's not just that we were there, it was an integral part of, you know, a global queer community. Mm. One last question. Um, What would Warwick think of the book? That's a really, really good question. One thing that uh, didn't make the book, but I did write was that Um, I had a dream about him and um, I think it sort of was cut as a bit cheesy, but it actually happened. I had a dream about him that we were quite young. Both of us were the age that he was in the dress, so around the five, five five-year-old, and we were playing a game and and I sort of pulled him aside and I was like, Warwick, be careful. You know, when you grow up, you're going to be killed. And and he he just didn't really feel like he believed me. He was like, yeah, sure, sure. But he did listen to me and then and then I woke up and for a split second I, f- I felt like I'd saved him and that I was like, okay, great, good, uh, you know. And so I think obviously it's such a tragedy dying at such a young age. Um, he didn't get to have many life experiences. He didn't get to, you know, grow up. He didn't get to have any relationships that we know about. He didn't get to, you know, come back from war and, you know, start a life. So I think I like to think that if you're happy, that people will know his name, people will know his story, um, that, you know, one of his ancestors 70 years later really cares about him and wanted to know what happened to him. So, yeah, I, I like to think that he's he's happy about this book now being out in the world. Gosh, Jonathan, now I'm going to cry. Jonathan, oh. thank you so much for your time today. Oh, thank you, Cheryl. This has been great. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.